Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where you and your unique business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Mark Nepo. Mark is a poet and philosopher who's taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 40 years. A number one New York Times bestselling author, he's published 21 books, including his most recent, Drinking from the River of Light and The Book of Soul. Mark has been interviewed several times by Oprah Winfrey on her Super Soul Sunday TV program. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Mark. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. So you wrote, uh, I mean, your book, uh, Drinking from the River of Light, is really, a, and, and uh, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really about expression and creativity. And you wrote that while we can get better at creating without becoming whole, we can't become whole without getting better. Yeah. You know, I, I think what's really influenced, this is after a life of, of, uh, you know, being a creative person and, and, and also, as you know, from my other work, being a long-term cancer survivor. And so, you know, the whole heart of that book, and I'll get to exactly what you raised there, because it's really at the heart of, heart of it is that, um, you know, I started out like everybody else. I, I felt drawn to, I was a poet and then went to graduate school and I was hoping that I would, you know, maybe if I was really worked hard, maybe I'd write one or two great poems in my lifetime, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, and then in my uh, early 30s, I uh, was stricken with a rare form of lymphoma, and almost died. So forget writing great poems. (laughs) Uh, I needed to discover true poems that would help me live. Mm. And so on the other side of that, I mean, now in my 60s, my late 60s, um, I want to be the poem. The words are just a trail. Hmm. And so, the, you know, the, the real upside down, real transformation for me around this and around creativity <clears throat> was that it was really not about creating great poems. It was about the health and the journey of the life of expression So, you know, we live in a world that is so impacted by the manufacturing imprint uh, that it even affects our our conscience, even with with good intent, even around creativity. You know, we're creating products, we're manufacturing, we're always working toward excellence, toward perfection, toward efficiency. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But what I've learned through my journey is that regardless of what is the artifact that is created, my wholehearted engagement with the process creates me. It is the way that I have been formed. And so it's led me to explore that, you know, you know, at first um, one of the distributors for Sounds True, when the book was coming out, wanted to say, well, well, can't we make the subtitle, which is the life of expression, the creative life of expression? And I said, no, 
<laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. You know, what I'm saying is that every person, every person has to have some form of expression. And it's not about whether we do excellent work. It's whether we do thorough, wholehearted work that makes us come alive and stay alive. Mm. And that's, you know, so the, the central metaphor, as you know, uh, in early in the book is around breathing. You know, we, you and I on, on this call, we can't, you know, we have to inhale and exhale. We have no choice. I, I can't say, well, you know, just for this hour, I'll inhale only. <laughs> That's not going to work. <laughs> right, right. And the way the heart breathes, the heart inhales and exhales. And the way it inhales is by feeling and perceiving. And it exhales by some personal form of expression. And it doesn't matter what it is. It, you know, let's open it up wide up. It's not just the creative art forms. It could be gardening. It could be taking car engines uh, apart and putting them back together. Um, it could be stamp collecting. It, whatever we give our wholehearted uh, thoroughness to will shape and keep the heart breathing. Mm. And that's, that's the journey. Mm. Well, um, I know that you, uh, something that you wrote uh, was about before your cancer journey, you said you were a driven artist. And then after that, you lost your creative drive, mm. which really scared you. And you discovered that you were drawn to things. So instead of, you wrote this so beautifully, instead of being a rushing river, you gave away to deeper waters. And yeah. is there... Is that more of an, an interpersonal journey, or does it does it lead to more impact? Do you think? Well, I think you know the thing about um, and and I know you're, uh, of your interest in impact. So let me couch it. You know, I, I did think you know I was a driven artist, and I do use that metaphor. It's like a, a roaring river makes a lot of noise, and then all of a sudden, when I woke up and I was so happy to be here, my drive was gone, and it was scary, and I was like disoriented. But like that current, when it reaches the sea, it goes deeper and joins the larger body of water. And so being drawn and not driven was actually, once I was reoriented, was more freeing and more joyful. <laughs> and part of my, you know, I'm blessed to be prolific, and, and that's because I'm, in being drawn and not driven, I'm, not, I'm also not tied to intent. I'm prolific because... I write about what I need to know and don't know, not what I know. If I wrote about what I knew, I would have written very little. <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's a, that's the other thing is that the, the creative process, it's not about whether you write it. I happen to write it down, but you don't even have to write it down. You know, it's the, the, this is the way that I learn is by inquiry, by staying in a conversation with life. And that engagement causes us to be embodied. So, so let's talk for a minute about impact as it'll in, be the kind of lens uh, through which all the rest of our conversation. So certainly we have impact on each other, but, but I've come to, you know, I give my all, I do everything, but I don't, I don't, um, I hold very loosely intent you know, I hold, you know, uh, I hold very loosely that we have very little control 
over life, other than uh, giving our care and all our wholeheartedness. And so, you know, um, in the way that the sun emanates light and heat in all directions without preference, the heart is our inner sun. And so certainly in the surface world, I make choices. Uh, I made, you know, we made choices to make sure we were talking today and what I work on and where I go. But my inner commitment is to make sure that inner sun never stops shining. So let me couple that with another notion here in terms of, of impact that is uh, inherent impact, I would say as opposed mm -hmm. to directed impact. So, you know, in the indigenous traditions, especially in, in the Polynesian uh, cultures, they have a term mana, M-A-N-N-A, that's, that's different than the Christian sense of mana, of, of the, the bread in the desert. So the, the Polynesian sense of mana is the numinous quality that everything has everything has some kind of life force spirit energy that is emanating you could say it's the opposite of gravity gravity pulls us grounds us it pulls us in and mana or this energy this life force emanates out of us it's it's the energy and and so what happens when the sun uh emanates that constantly. Well, everything grows to it. So when we can be who we are, the deepest impact beyond our intent is when we are thoroughly ourselves, we grow to each other. So two things to add to that. One is, you know, that uh, Carl Jung came along and he read about this, learned about it, and he said, well, I want to I'd like to add a psycho-spiritual definition of that energy, of that mana. And he defined mana as the unconscious influence of one being on another. Hmm. Not by persuasion, not by debate, not by manipulation or control or strength, but like that sun, if we are authentically who we are, we will grow to each other the way plants grow toward light. And so, you know, Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk, you know, one of the <laughs> things he said was, um, if we truly beheld each other, we'd fall down and worship each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this, this is the ground of impact beyond. Now, we can talk about um, intent. So let, uh, let me... Since we opened this up, let me and then I'll pause. Yeah, yeah, so, please. Yeah. yeah, so um, what I feel is I've come to learn is that there's nothing wrong with wanting go, having goals and dreams and working, striving toward things. But I think we all, at least I know I have in my life at times earlier in my life, I've held on to them too tightly. Like just because I want something, um, you know, then we start defining. We make gods out of what we want, and then we start saying, well, success means uh, I'll get what I want, and failure means I won't get what I want. Well, 
That's actually a very infantile definition of success yeah. and failure. Yeah, and pretty simplistic. Yeah. So but what happens is for me and what I've learned is that I can work for, I often work toward things and then what I can't foresee because I've put the effort in comes into view. So, you know, and if I only held to what I work toward, I would miss it. You know, every one of the books I've, right. I've written is not the book I started. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so much the the journey itself that shifts things. I always say, um, as soon as you begin something, the landscape shifts. You see things you didn't see before you began, and uh, it really changes the experience and and what comes out of it, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something else you, you wrote about, this is in the Book of Soul, you talked about we're responsible for our own lives and for each other. And it's in the context of prosperity, which I'd really like to talk a little more about. But, but just to speak to what you were saying around impact, um, I, I think there's a bit of, there's, there's a tension in our culture between this kind of goal-setting thing and driving towards something versus holding a space for each other or allowing for an opportunity to contribute to each other's lives. And I, I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think, let me, let me offer you what comes to mind are a couple of things. So, um, and so let me, let me um, tell a couple of stories to help mm-hmm. enter that. So, so, you know, one is that, um, uh, and this is, this is in my book, As Far As The Heart Can See, and it's this little short story about a bicyclist, a profession, you know, he's really like serious. It's like a Tour de France cyclist, okay? And, and you know, he's really training hard, and he's got all the state-of-the-art equipment, and he's shaved all the hair off his body, so there's late, little resistance. And the day of the race comes, and they're off, and... Um, you know, it's out in the country, and after the first few miles, as they come over a hill, he's ahead. He's way ahead. I mean, he's so far ahead that as he is coasting down the hill, as he approaches the bottom of the hill, briefly, you can't see the other racers. And just as he comes down to the bottom of the hill, out of nowhere, a great blue heron, with its wings spread, swoops over his handlebars. My mm. God, it stuns him. So much that he stops and he straddles the bike and the other races are catching up and he stopped because the heron has opened something he is, he's been chasing. (laughs) Now we're almost done the story. So now everybody's catching up and he's still not moving. And now we cut years later and he's staring out in his backyard. And once in a while, if you ask him what cost you the race, once in a while, he'll say, I didn't lose the race. I left it. <laughs> now, you know, somebody could say, well, that's all very poetic, but he did lose the race. You know, like Jerry Seinfeld, of all the people that, that failed, you came in first. Um, <laughs> you know, you uh, didn't win the race. But I hold it differently. I think he trained to meet the heron, which changed the way he perceived life. And if you had told him he was training to meet a heron, he wouldn't have trained. 
And so we often train for what we can see, the goal that we have in view, never, but we have to stay open. You know, we tend to think in our modern world that the unknown is always catastrophic. Well, it's not. It's, it can be, but it is equally filled with wonder and surprise and all kinds of things that are beyond what we could have imagined. So that's the, the first story. So here's a, a second one. This goes back in the, seven, in the 1600s. There was a Japanese monk by the name of Tetsugen. And, and this, I think, will get at the heart of the question, the good question you asked about this tension in our world, which is a tension that's been in every generation, but it's particularly acute in our modern era. So Tetsugen, he, he, his, at an early age, his drivenness, his goal, his calling was to translate the talks of Buddha into Japanese. In the 60, by the 1600s, it had never been done yet. And so he went about doing that, and he enlisted an artist friend who did beautiful woodblock engravings and, and uh, said, let's do this. And so they worked on this together, and then they would go out and beg alms in order to have money to publish this holy text. Well, they worked on it for many years, and after about eight, nine years, there was a flood like Katrina or Irma or any of these massive floods in the northwest part of Japan where Tetsugan was from. So he gave all the money away because his people needed it. Then he went back to translating and his artist friend went back to doing the art and they begged more money. Another eight, nine, ten years go by and they're close to being finished. And now in another part of Japan, there's a famine. But what giving the money away the first time taught him is it opened his compassion. He said, well, even though these people, are, I didn't grow up with them, what's the difference? So he gave the money away again. And after 25 years, he, he finished and published the first translation of Buddha talks in the Japanese. And today, in Kyoto, in a museum, one of those original copies is there under glass, and the plaque reads, in Tetsugan's lifetime, he published three uh, holy texts. Only one is visible. <laughs> oh, that's great. And, and you know what that teaches me and why I tell that story, because the more we tell it, the more we understand. You know, So the more I've told it, the more I've learned from it. But what it teaches me is that it's fine to want and work toward things. But what, we work, what, what I work for that I want has turned out to be an apprenticeship for working with what we're given. And that's where our gifts really show up. Mm. And that hits what you, the question you asked about, how do we show up for each other versus going for what we want? And that leads to to this last parable and, and take a pause there. Um, but your question opened up a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. so this is a, this is a, uh, a parable about, uh, it could be, you know, any tradition, but let's say it's two monks and they study a long time. And because one day they're supposed to keep an appointment at the top of this mountain with Buddha and the day comes and they, they start walking up the mountain and halfway up the mountain, uh, one of them breaks his leg. 
and they spend the night and the other takes care of him ho hoping in the morning he'll be able he'll leave him and keep his appointment with buddha at the top of the mountain and in the morning the one who broke his leg isn't doing well he's got a fever and it's clear that you, uh, he can't just leave him. So the, the parable stops there and says, what would you do? And when we have more people in a, a generation that will keep their appointment at the top of the mountain rather than tend their broken other, we engender an age of cruelty. Mm. When we have more people in a generation who will discover that tending their broken other is the summit. We engender an age of compassion. And each of us faces this choice every day. And you can put whatever you want on the top of the mountain. You can put financial security, success, impact, you name it, uh, you know, wealth, whatever you, you want at the top of the mountain. And this is where working for what we want, if we stay driven, can preclude, can preclude us from the gifts we find by working with what we're given. Hmm. Well, and it reminds me of something you wrote around pushing things versus tending things. Like making stuff happen is a cultural thing. It's an entrepreneurial thing to a large extent. And... Um, tending things is not really a way that we, and tending to each other is not really a way that we look at things. Well, and it's, you know, and, and, it, and this goes, you know, one of my other books was called more, we, you know, more together than alone. And this is, this is, be, I think, because we have this insidious um, self-centered assumption in, in our, especially in the modern Western world, that, you know, if I stop to learn from you or help you, I'm not going to get where I'm going. I'm not going to get what I want. That mm -hmm. relationship will slow me down. And what like great love and great suffering in all the traditions speak to this have taught us is it's actually the opposite. Hmm. We are more together than alone, and I only grow for learning from you or caring for you. And so this goes, you know, because each culture on earth, like people, people have gifts and shadows, and they have personalities and quirks and different moods. Well, so too cultures. And so, you know, it's not, we don't have to blame or find fault with any culture, but we need here is that in the West, you know, one of the things that the West and America and, and what we've done is we have developed in great depth this notion of a self. And that's a, a good thing. Uh, when that self, as we go into the traditions, then take the self and say, yeah, but the self is only a membrane or a inlet to the rest of the universe. And so it's all about relationship. But the, it's not by accident that the shadow of the Western, modern Western world is that more than any other civilization or society on earth, uh, we have a psychological disease called self-centeredness and narcissism. 
Now you look at, and really our journey is interdependent, not independent. And you, you look at Africa and all of those nations in Africa, their sense of community and relationship is paramount. Uh, so much, but, but, but they also have trouble uh, establishing and maintaining a self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this whole cultural belief around the word Ubuntu, which is yes. I am, you yes. are, and that sense of community. And I've I've worked with entrepreneurs in Africa, and their focus is primarily on community, and that sometimes can hinder them from having as much effect on the community as they could because they're or as quickly as they could, which we kind of see as valuable here, but they don't. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's that, um, and it's not either or, it's like they're all tools in a toolbox mm-hmm. and we need, how do we begin in the metaphor here, you know, in the bloodstream, the bloodstream is only healthy if it has healthy cells. So there's your individual yourself. However, there is no home for the blood cells if there's no stream. <laughs> there is no home right. if there's no community. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we have to uh, learn, learn how to, to have both work together. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here for the moment and, and say that, um, I mean, a lot of the things you've been talking about around uh, allowing us to affect each other ar- around taking care of each other you know, you could argue from a sort of practical standpoint of, I mean, you have your own business and you have, uh, you need to make a living as all of us do and, um, or most of us do. And, and so what do you see as uh, something you talk about is, is living a making versus making a living. And, and I think, there's a, there's a kind of sense that, well, if you get too spiritual, for lack of a better word, that you're going to lose all sense of connection with the real world and having to have income and, and all of those things in the yeah, business. Yeah, so it's not... How do you reconcile those? Uh, well, they're not, they, they're not reconciled, they're integrated. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not one or the other. So, you know, one of the things that um, I, I, and this is a paradox that every person who's ever lived has and will have to, to negotiate and develop uh, skill at, and that is every person who's ever lived needs to survive and thrive. Now, if we, if we only thrive, and that's the, the part of it that you started your question with, well, that, you know, like if we're having this, so if you only thrive, you're not going to survive very long. But if all you do is survive and not thrive, what's the point? So, you know, I often, so we just like you have to have two healthy legs to walk and two eyes to see to have depth perception. We both need to survive. In the outer world, we need to survive. And that, you know, uh, requires managing risk. But to be alive, to make the most out of the life we're given, to be wholehearted, we have to enhance risk. And we have to negotiate and be skillful 
at both. You know, I learned this years ago. I was invited to, um, you know, I, I led a retreat for for uh, like like executive bankers, you know, and um, <laughs> and in the beginning of the retreat, it wasn't it wasn't going really well, you know, and um, and I sensed this resistance, and so so I just let's just take a long coffee break. It was about like maybe twenty people, and. Um, and because uh, I really thought, you know, even my own biases and stereotypes, like, I don't really know what these people do, you know, like, so we had this long coffee break with donuts and caught, you know, and, and we just into another room, went in another room. And I just, we just schmoozed and I just went around to everyone I could and just said, well, you know, tell me about like, why do you do what you do? Like, what, what's, what is your thing? What is this? And, and they didn't use this language per se, but everyone got down to every kind of person said in one way or another, well, you know, our job is to manage risk. Like people, whether they're a family or a business, they work hard, they make their money. And our job is to help them not lose it, you know, to manage risk out there. And then as soon as I got that from all of them, that's when I understood what I just said to you. And then I said, okay, we can get back together now because I understand it because their gift is managing risk my gift is enhancing risk <laughs> and and it's and we do that you know so what happens to all of us and this is why we need clarity which goes back to that the life of expression a personal form of expression helps us stay clear is you know sometimes if i manage risk inwardly i i won't thrive i'll never i'll 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 start to actually you know uh, muffle and the light will go out. So, you know, like if we're having this conversation and we're out on the street and we don't pay attention and we cross the highway, well, that's managing risk. We'll get hit by a truck, you know, so we have to, but if, if all we do is give our effort and this is what pragmatism, you know, if we make pragmatism a God, if we, you know, make scarcity a God, then all we do is manage risk and surviving becomes the end all be all. Mm. So that, you know, and the other out of balance is the kind of, you know, uh, we're gonna, you know, and uh, transcend out of here. No, no, the world, you know, um, there are times when the world feels so harsh that everybody wants to get out of here, you know? <laughs> That's where, you know, Keats on his famous ode on a Grecian urn, you know, the guy was 24 years old, dying of tuberculosis, in, in uh, a friend's apartment in Rome. And he was like, man, this is too much. I wish I could. And there's this beautiful urn. And he just said, boy, if I could just be on the urn and like get out of this, that's really what that's all about. And you can't, you know, one of the, so one of the things that I always kind of, it's like a covenant when I teach retreats is, well, we have to pause and be in this circle to make sense of life. Um, Gathering like this is a resource and not a refuge. Hmm. So, you know, we can, uh, you know, this is why when people manage risk or uh, only and are efficient and even when businesses, you know, make a lot of money and there's, but their soul and their heart hasn't grown. This is, you know, throughout history why people, um, you know, can be quote outwardly successful and not have peace, hmm. not be happy. Yeah. Well, on the, I mean, on the on the other side of that, of of uh, you know, difficulty and and 
lack of kind of the day-to-day means to to live well there's the the insulation of living well so i'm just kind of taking a thread of what you talked about and and uh, you talk about prosperity blindness mm-hmm. in the world, yeah. where the insulation of living well, which is different from well-being, provides a challenge in the life of community, you wrote. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and this is something, and there's nothing wrong with, with living well or being prosperous. But again, it's what does that do to us? So, you know, one of the things that's, um, it's not by accident that the people who give the most, uh, and there's been studies in the world of philanthropy, the people who give the most are the people who have the least. And that's because, that's because once you suffer, you know what it's about and your heart's open. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, yes, there's, there's difficult external difficulties and, you know, nobody needs to court suffering or hardship. We all get our share, but you know, um, there was a study done uh, by a place called the Wildflower Institute um, that was showing that, yeah, yeah, while one of the things that if we don't compensate for the insulation of prosperity, we become more and more isolated. So, you know, people who don't have a house, you know, like if we have a home that and we're able to afford that we have many rooms and, you know, we might, uh, well, that's great. We have space and everything but we're not we're not good at relationship and while somebody who might be forced to live you know six people in two rooms there's very a lot of difficulty and stress uh their skill at relationship is inherently better you know and it's not this is not to romanticize uh poverty this is to say just like we did with the cultures that every situation has a gift and it's incumbent on us that whatever we're not good at to get good at, you know? Mm. So this is, you know, in, in, uh, this is one of the things about, about progress. So, so here to back up for a second and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring the, so, you know, when we look at the word and I, uh, this, I discovered in an earlier book of mine, the exquisite risk when I was writing that book and that the word science from the Latin means to know the word conscience Con science with the prefix C O N means to know well. Hmm. And the gap is the cost of progress. Okay. The gap is the cost of progress. So example, you know, physically we know that, you know, you're sitting somewhere, you got heat and light. I do. I don't want to give these things up. It's wonderful. Okay. But you know, a hundred years ago, uh, maybe 120 years ago, we would have done a lot of physical labor to get wood or coal, to get heat, to generate light, to make candles. I mean, but because we have that, uh, all these wonderful things, so we've learned that in order to make up for the lack of physical work that survival cost us, we go to gyms and we do exercise and we walk and we run and we hike and we play, you know, racquetball and we do all and we swim. So there are physical aerobics to make up for the cost of progress in that realm. Mm-hmm. But what we haven't done and which is our frontier today 
is we are in need of emotional and spiritual aerobics because the cost of prosperity blindness, the cost of not having a relationship is that we have to go out and work to stay good at relationship. We have to go out and not be isolated. And technology only complicates that. So an example here is, you know, wonderfully, I can go online and I can bring up pictures and videos of someone, you know, in the Amazon River or the, you know, the Victoria Falls in Africa or the, the, or, you know, the mountains in the Himalayas. And that's wonderful because I might never get to those places. But that does not substitute for seeing things and making the actual climb. Not making the climb, not being in the journey, it is a spiritual cost of progress. Mm-hmm. It's not the set. Yeah, I don't want to give up being able to see a picture or a video because I may never be able to go there. Isn't that amazing? Wonderful. But that doesn't mean that seeing that is equivalent to the transformation of making the journey. And one of the costs, the spiritual and psychological costs of progress today, is that we are not, we've lost relationship. And the impact, you want to talk about impact, the impact of the journey of being alive, we are losing. Well, and and technology doesn't substitute for online connection. I mean, you may be able to see photographs of people in the Amazon, but that's not a substitute for actually meeting people, connecting with them, understanding their culture, being in dialogue with them. Yeah, there's a a wonderful little parable that I tell in in the Book of Awakening where a, uh, a teacher sends his student to sit by the river and sit and listen until he's learned all the river has to teach him. And he's a very serious student. So he goes there and he has his meditation cushion and he has his bells and, and, and he spends the first day trying to figure out where's the proper place to sit. You know, at first he's real close and it's too noisy and then he's too far. And he finally sits under a willow tree and he spends three days in deep, hard meditation after which he has nothing but a terrible headache. And, uh, <laughs> and just then he opens his eyes And in the river, a monkey, a little monkey out of nowhere, jumps in the water, the middle of the stream, splashing and hooting and hollering and yelping. And it cracks the apprentice. He starts to cry. And he gathers his things. He goes back and he tells his teacher what happened. And his teacher puts his arm around him and he says, ah, the monkey heard. You just listened. (laughs) That is great. And, you know, they have the, the... the goal is to get wet, is to embody yeah. life. And this goes back to th- thriving. You know, out of our fear, we uh, isolate ourselves and we make pragmatism and caution a God. And that puts us out of reach. There's nothing wrong with being prudent or careful. So an example, an example is if somebody, um, and this came up in a workshop I was doing, a, a woman shared with me that her husband, um, they had, 
they had had near their home, they had had like a tornado. It didn't hit their home, but it came through their community. And ever since then, um, her husband became almost phobic about you know, weather report and putting locks on the doors and braces on the windows. And, and then he wasn't, you know, nothing really cured it. And, and, uh, you know, cause you couldn't anticipate that. And he put more locks on the doors and more things. And, and, you know, he just became more and more isolated and anxious because he, you know, that's the sort of, that's met, that's the preoccupation with survival but it's only thriving and being in conversation with life, the underlying, you know, sure, we can all be affected by unpredictable things like this is the, the precarious beauty, miracle, and, and uh, danger of being alive. Yeah, tornado could come by while I'm talking to you right here. Okay, but the underlying problem, and this is not to you know, judge or blame this man because we all deal with different forms of it, is how do we make uh, a covenant with life and death? Hmm. You know, that, that's the conversation. Everyone, just like we all have to survive and thrive, we all have to have an ongoing conversation with our mortality, not to be preoccupied with it, but so it helps us make life more precious. Mm. And, and make choices that reflect the fact that you know you're going to die at some point. Right. And, and when we don't, then the parts that come along the way, like, gee, you know, I, that tornado could have killed us. Well, you know, I better, better put more locks on the door. I better put more things. Well, there's no amount of <laughs> that's going to substitute, like for the journey, is going to substitute for the conversation which leads us to, you know, this is the other side, or not other side, this is, I think, a necessary conversation to, to the con impact conversation, and that is our conversation with acceptance. And when you say that, what do you mean? I mean, acceptance in the sense of? Acceptance of our impact, of our limitations, of our control, you know, I can't truly have an impact if I don't accept things as they are. Now, this is this is a great, you know, one of the great kind of uh, worldviews in the Buddhist tradition is this practice of, and it's very simple and very hard of trying to see things as they are, because as human beings, we always inflate or deflate our circumstances and our relationships and our sense of ourself. We're going to do that because we're human. But the practice is how do we then right-size things and see things as they are? Mm. Because if I don't, then whether I'm in business or in a family or whatever I'm doing or teaching, I will have unrealistic expectations of myself and others. And I will mm. not have an impact. You know, I can't... If I... Except now this is something this is something that's interesting. I learned I think from my wife years ago We've been together over 25 years and it's this notion that you know in 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 modern Society we have this romantic notion that when we find when we commit to a love You know that then we're gonna you know, we'll be everything to each other 
And my wife, Susan, was really, very wise about this. And, you know, maybe halfway through our, you know, year 10 or 11, you know, uh, saying, you know, we're not. We're just not. I mean, I want to. My heart wants to. But I'm human. I won't. I mean, there, you know, so. And we really can better be there for each other when we can accept that. So that if I realize, you know, there's going to be days when, uh, you know, when you're going to need me and I'm going to be exhausted or in pain or in my own stuff. And if we can accept that, then we'll be able to say, I think you should call a friend right now and then I'll be better later. Right. Right. And so extrapolate that to business, extrapolate that to impact. You cannot have meaningful impact if you don't have acceptance of things as they are. Well, it's, a, it's the starting point. It's the beginning of everything. So, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for, for circling back to this question of impact. And, and um, it's uh, probably a great point to kind of come to a few questions that I always ask people that I interview around impact. So if you're, sure. if you're ready, um, let's, let's go with those. So this rapid round has three questions. And the first one is what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? The biggest thing I've learned about having impact is if I am thoroughly myself and, and am wholehearted, I will have impact beyond what I can imagine and know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know, like beyond beyond my prescribed intent, that when I am mm-hmm. authentic, there is impact. Yeah, that's great. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I I think it is you know uh, showing up. And 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 uh, and and being vulnerable, I, you know, medieval monks, when asked how they practiced their faith, said by falling down and getting up. I think that I think getting up because we're always going to fall down, and our job is to get up one more time than we fall down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the last question is: What's one insider piece of advice you'd share with someone who's thinking about how can I kind of walk this, this balance, I guess, that we've been talking about around impact, what would you say to them? I, I, my my uh, wholehearted encouragement is to listen and ask what is needed before you declare what you have to give. Well, Mark, thank you so much for this conversation today. I um, there's a there's a deep realm of impact that doesn't often get plumbed, and I think this has been a really relevant conversation on on the deepest human level. And as as you always do, you really bring such uh, love and compassion to to this journey that we're all on. And uh, so I want to thank you for. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's a joy. (laughs) Well, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to to reach you? Yeah. So uh, there are two websites, uh, marknepo.com and three intentions, all spelled out one word.com and, and all of where I'm teaching and speaking and 
is all up there and, and all of, uh, you know, my books and everything. And then also you'll find there, in addition to where I'm traveling and speaking, I also, uh, for small groups of no more than 30, um, I also offer year-long uh, journeys here where I live in Michigan. And uh, so that is that a group of no more than 30 people uh, comes together four weekends over a year around an inner journey that I design. And one of the reasons I created that about eight, nine years ago <clears throat> was because I love traveling and teaching, but I missed traveling with people over time. Mm. And, and so it's a very intimate experience. So if anyone is interested who's listening, um, on my website, there's a little video and there's a link that will go to a page that has all the details of, about everything there and how to register. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you for all of that. And thank you again, Mark, for the, the work you're doing in the world and, and your own expression. Oh, and thank you for letting me be a part of your work, too. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.